You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name and tearing down neoliberalism and replacing it with more sustainable economic systems is my game. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Needless to say, this is an ongoing work in progress. Now Australia has a federal election coming up around the corner. Yay! I always look forward to the three-year cycle of choosing between diminishing points of difference for more of the same jobs and growth and to the same thing next time. And aren't we sport for choice this time around? According to the memes going around, to vote for their LNP is to commit to three degrees warming, Labor two or more degrees, and the Greens a mere 1.5 degree. Now, given the fragility of the Australian continent and the vagaries of our weather, none of these seem particularly appealing to me. Personally, I'll be preferencing my vote to Sustainable Australia Party, which is a vote that at least stands up to the overdevelopment and growth-obsessed paradigm, and the Animal Justice Party, which is a vote for the animals and counters the anthropocentric paradigm. But do your research and check your policies. There are some good independents with strong climate policies in several of the more progressive LNP seats. I'm sure no PGAP listener is fooled by the Liberal claims they are better economic managers using their own criteria for economic success. The Liberals have hardly been bastions of success. While running up a large debt and wasting taxpayer funds to the wind may not be quite the disaster under the lens of modern monetary theory, certainly the cost of living, the cost of housing, the funneling of profits to fewer and fewer sociopaths, and the toll to the natural landscape forever leaves a toll on us all. But if a transition to a Green New Deal economy is the immediate answer from the Greens, then take heed to the recent Four Corners episode, which suggests that mining will need to ramp up in order to persist in a growth-based economy fueled by renewables. So much for ABC commies protesting against the big miners and progress, hey? <laughs> Wouldn't it have been nice to have a party deliver on an entirely new economic platform come the next election? One that is based on steady state, degrowth, ecologically sustainable principles that prioritise the well-being of all life rather than the gargantuan egos and hoarding tendencies of billionaires. If such a party needed a Bible to base their policies on, they couldn't do much better than a new massive volume, sustainability and a new economics, synthesising ecological economies and modern monetary theory. This new book is edited by two Australians, Stephen J. Williams and Rod Taylor. Each chapter is written by a guest author, which combined almost reads like a PGAP guest wish list. Michael Kirby, Ian Dumlop, Will Steffen, Philip Lorne, Ian Lowe, who actually appeared on the last episode of PGAP. As described on the website, this multidisciplinary book provides new insights and hope for sustainable prosperity given recent developments in economics, but only if swift and strong actions consistent with Earth's biophysical limits and principles of justice are universally taken. The book details some sobering realities of the business-as-usual economics while offering many realistic and applicable solutions. The lead editor, Stephen Williams, reached out to me for an interview, which I was more than delighted to accept. 
Steve is a walking encyclopedia on ecological economics and modern monetary theory, and he takes us through a crash course on both during the next 40 minutes. Stephen Williams has a background in newspaper journalism and law. He began his journalism career at the Canberra Times in 2000 and subsequently specialised in environmental matters. His overarching interest is in designing sustainable societies. He believes mainstream economics can only provide a path to collapse. But enough from me, time for a crash course on alternative economics from the man himself. Stephen, my first question for you is, would you prefer to be called Steve from here on? Uh, my friends tend to call me Steve, so let's go for that. No worries. Now, um, Steve, you have a background in both journalism and law, and you are a recent editor and author of the 2022 book Sustainability and New Economics, Synthesising Ecological Economics and Modern Monetary Theory. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself, the passions that drive you, and what you like to do in your spare time when you're not thinking about post-growth. Right. Well, my uh, main formative influences, as far as I can tell, were the time I spent on my grandparents' farm as a child. They were my happiest memories. I always loved going to the farm, which was at Wallumby in New South Wales. It was a mixed farm and they only got electricity fairly late, which was common in that area at the time. I don't believe they ever owned an internal combustion engine. There were no tractors, there were no cars, there were no electric pumps for milking. You know, everything was done by hand. Uh, things like that, pretty rustic and yet great fun. Well, at least for a kid. So what I'm trying to get across here is that it was that connection to the natural environment and the land that must have been a huge formative influence on me because that's my happiest memory. Then as I got older, I got into surfboard riding and surfing culture. And that's another thing that tends to make people appreciate the natural environment. Uh, and so basically... For as long as I can remember, I've been um, what a lot of people would call, we used to call them conservationists. These days we tend to call them environmentalists. Surely everyone should be able to understand that it's the natural world that is the source of all our wealth and ultimately happiness. Yes, and I do say that um, you need to be within the natural world in order to appreciate and uh, want to protect it, which um, is a huge struggle for so many more of us who are growing, in, growing up in suburbia with all the modcons. Now, Steve, you, um, among your many trades, you're a journalist. Your career in the mainstream press, I believe, dates back to the 2000s, and feel free to um, tell me if I'm wrong, but I recall one of the Fairfax presses. Now, was that a challenging time to be writing on environmental or degrowth themes? Did you write on environmental or degrowth themes back then? And do you think these issues have become easier and more difficult to openly discuss uh, at present date? I started off mainly writing feature articles at the Canberra Times 
um, feature articles, and then I moved into op-eds, uh, which is what we call opinion articles. So the feature articles I was writing, I was interviewing the most famous people that I could find. And they're called profile pieces. So no, I initially in journalism, I wasn't writing about sustainability so much. That happened later. I really got into that in about 2008, I'd say, just after the or during, really, the global financial crisis is when uh, I really started to specialise in sustainability. In some ways, it's easier to write about these questions as the ecological crisis becomes more obvious to everyone. Of course, most people focus on the climate crisis, which is bad enough, but people need to understand that the climate crisis is only part of a much bigger crisis. But in some ways, it's harder to write about these things because if you're writing about these things honestly and deeply, you have to address mainstream economics, which is really the source of all these environmental problems and other problems in society such as inequality. So it's quite difficult if you want to talk about climate change and the ecological crisis properly because the mainstream media don't want to hear about degrowth. There are some exceptions, not many. It's extremely hard to get the quality mainstream media to face up to the fact that mainstream economics is a debased degenerate discipline that is equivalent in many ways to astrology and these other things that have really no empirical basis. They are divorced from the real world and that's really the best explanation of why the world is in such a dangerous mess. Thankfully there are some good economists which we usually call heterodox economists who strongly disagree with the mainstream. They realize how dangerous mainstream economics is and they're trying very hard to change things. But it's extremely difficult because mainstream economics, after all, is a discipline created by politically conservative ideologues and they want to keep it that way. They are not interested in what we would call economic reform. Yes, I think you're um, in very kindred company on this podcast with those uh, views, Steve. You co-edited Sustainability and the New Economics with Rod Taylor of Fuzzy Logic. You co-authored the introduction and outro with chapters from guest authors, including well-known names such as Michael Kirby, Philip Lorne, Ian Lowe, just to name a few. There, uh, I saw some familiar names in there from people who also presented at the Fenner Conference just past, uh, making us... Australian agriculture sustainable. What was your inspiration for producing this book and any highlights that stick out in collaborating with such great people? Yeah, well, the, the, the best reason to, uh, to either write a book or co-edit a collected volume, as we did in this case, is because 
such a book doesn't exist. And in this case, what we were ultimately trying to do is show that ecological economics and modern monetary theory are both entirely compatible and should form the basis of the new real-world economics that we desperately need. To get to that point, we had to tell the story of where we are at present in terms of the ecological crisis. Uh, we had to tell a story a bit about economic history, how mainstream economics that we know today, wh wh where it evolved from. That's usually called the history of economic thought, and you need to get some of that under your belt to understand the mess we're in. So that includes an understanding of what we call neoclassical economics, which began in around about 1870s, led to the Great Depression, and essentially is the, the main economics we're stuck with today, although uh, it's complicated by the fact that we have this thing called neoliberalism, which is an ideology that sort of sits on top of neoclassical economics. As we get to the sort of the third part of the book, then we introduce uh, ecological economics. We explain in great detail what it is and the principles behind it. That's the chapter I wrote with Philip Lorne, who's one of the main inspirations for the book. And then we have soon after that the chapter on MMT, which introduces people to what MMT is and potential association with the Green New Deal. And indeed, the job guarantee. We mustn't forget the job guarantee as uh, an important part of MMT. Broad question, Steve. How would you describe the main thrust of the arguments within this book? That we desperately need this new real-world economics if we're going to avoid collapse and if we're going to approach anything vaguely like sustainability. That really is the thrust of the book. We're in a mess. We're trying to explain why we're in a mess and the fairly narrow path that we have to get out of the mess. So people listening to this podcast would probably know that the global economy that we measure by something called gross world product is about 70% too big for anything like a sustainable world. Yet we've got a few billion people still living in poverty. How can that be? And how can we address it? Obviously, the global economy has to shrink substantially. That's the post growth part. Some national economies will still have to grow because they are smaller than the optimum, but economies in the high-income nations have to shrink because they're way past their optimum size. What's their optimum size? Well, if economic growth has greater costs than benefits, then you're beyond your optimum size. I think this is best has to be approached at a national level where each nation has to measure its biocapacity, but then has to measure 
the physical throughput of goods and services through the economy, and it has to determine whether that throughput is too big or whether there's still room for that throughput to increase given the buyer capacity. But none of these things can be determined unless we measure them properly, which mainstream economists have no conception of how you'd go about it. Uh, they just want GDP to increase indefinitely for every country at, what, 2 or 3%, which gives you a doubling time of 45 or 30 years. This is the plan for every economy to double in size every 30 or 45 years until we consume the entire universe because that's what exponential growth does. And unfortunately, we still get this kind of talk when we look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals where you uh, would hope to see something better than what we've currently got, although it certainly is a, a move in the right direction. It just still has these fundamental flaws uh, about what can be achieved. Yes, uh, unfortunately, while neoliberalism economics and the pursuit of the GDP is routed in fantasy, um, the laws of exponential growth are rooted in mathematics, which unfortunately is a fact. Steve, in the introduction of sustainability and the new economics, you posit that the book advocates a paradigm shift in political, economic and ethical thinking and that sustainability will be very difficult to achieve without these. Uh, could you provide us with one example each of a political, a economic and a ethical rut we are in that needs changing? And I think you've touched on the economic situation, so maybe one um, political and one ethical rut to start off with. Yeah, that, that, that's tricky. I mean, the, the, the solution to all these problems are ultimately economic. Uh, so the real question is, how can you change economic departments in universities, um, which is proving incredibly difficult? Normally you get economic paradigm shifts when there's a crisis. So this is how we got the Keynesian revolution after the Great Depression. John Maynard Keynes, the UK economist, uh, was very prolific leading up to World War II, probably the greatest economist at the time. Because of that, that crisis caused by the Great Depression, then there was room, as it were, for Keynes's ideas. People were looking for solutions. Uh, we ended up with what we now call the Keynesian Revolution, or certainly a version of Keynes's ideas, arguably not pure Keynesianism which we've probably never had. Then what happened in the early to mid-1970s, we had the oil crisis, which produced um, high inflation and high unemployment for many years. This was another crisis, and that allowed neoliberalism to take hold. So you see this pattern where crises lead to new economic paradigms coming in. Now, when we had the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, a lot of people thought, 
and this includes MMT economists, they thought, well, this is our time. The crisis has arrived. Clear heads will prevail. They will see that mainstream economics and neoliberalism has produced the crisis and they will look for a better economics. It didn't happen. We're still waiting for the next crisis, I suppose, for a better economics to take hold. I think we're going to be waiting a while, unfortunately. It may be that some sort of collapse will happen. We'll get more failed states, more than we have at present, and somehow that will be enough for a new paradigm to emerge. I'm focusing a lot here on economics rather than politics and ethics. I mean, all these things are intertwined. You can't really separate politics and economics, which is why it used to be called political economy in the early days, and there is still a subject called political economy. Ethics is involved in everything. You can't separate ethics from any branch of human endeavour or thought, ethics and morality, ethics being what we decide personally and morality being what society decides. Yet yeah, all these things are interlinked, economics, politics, ethics, I don't really see how, how we can separate them. If you look at Australia just at the moment, we've got a federal election coming up in May. You can see how economics permeates almost everything that political parties and their candidates say. No matter what it is, um, there's a lot of talk, for instance, of a anti-corruption commission federally. Well, then the next question is, well, how much is it going to cost and how are you going to fund it? And what this commission will say about the funding of elections and the funding of political parties. So uh, the point being that all these things are so intertwined, it's really difficult to talk about them as separate things. And um, in fact, this is, has been one of the problems of modern life where we tend to separate things into compartments when in fact everything is linked with everything else, which is sort of the what we learn from system dynamics, which explains how all these major forces in the economy, they all affect each other in unpredictable ways with positive and negative feedbacks and time lags and things, which makes predictions and shows mainstream economics to be a very silly discipline indeed, which thinks there's things like uh, equilibrium points when they just don't exist. System dynamics, by the way, is was the thinking behind the very important report and book, The Limits to Growth, produced in 1972. It's now the 50th anniversary of that work. Those uh, people have uh, largely confirmed their findings quite a few times, and some independent scholars keep confirming that work, which, by the way, didn't predict a fixed outcome. It said, look, here are these 12 scenarios, 
and different things will likely happen depending on which scenario we follow. Well, we've pretty much followed business as usual and we're pretty much getting the outcomes, the very dangerous outcomes that book predicted. Now, Steve, your um, book actually offers a few solutions, uh, which I want to uh, touch on in a sec. Um, Do you have any opinions that you'd like to share on the ethics of pursuing population growth via economic migration? Um, I often joke that our political system is simultaneously trying to desperately double the population while simultaneously trying to price everyone out of the country, which just seems like a <laughs> bit of a long-term catch-22 mm-hmm. for me. Um, but over to you. Yeah, well, population's a critical subject uh, in economics. It's, uh, like everything else, extremely badly handled by Mainstream economics, they just want population to grow more or less forever. That will assist in growing GDP forever. And apparently we're all going to live happily ever after, despite the evidence that we see in front of us every day. So um, we talk in great detail about population growth in the book. There's a whole chapter dedicated to it by Ian Lowe. We discuss population growth in a different way in the chapter on ecological economics because it's always been a core issue in ecological economics. My solution, if you like, if there is one to this hopeless debate that we keep having, well, it's not really a debate in Australia, is it? It's it's you, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, it's a bit stat <laughs> you wouldn't give it the term debate it's just basically nonsense uh, in fact my next book is uh, going to be about population growth but to solve the political problem and the economic problem that we have with talking about population growth I would I would want to establish uh, some sort of independent commission of experts to look at the issue and hopefully establish. This is it would be a permanent commission, by the way, of the best experts we can find to come to terms with. I know we've had many official inquiries over the years into population growth in Australia. There's been at least six major inquiries into population growth. All these inquiries tend to say that Australia needs a population policy, which we don't have. We have immigration policies, which are de facto population policies, but that's not a population policy. But to get decent population policies, then policymakers have to understand what's being said by both ecological economists and MMT economists, because both of those schools of economics describe how the real world actually works. And that's what economics should do. It should give you a full range of policy options. Then it should tell you what's likely to happen if you follow one or more of those policy options. Economics is about prediction in some ways, and we can gauge the value of economists by the accuracy of their predictions. Again, this is where mainstream economists fail miserably 
their predictions are invariably hopeless because their base assumptions are hopeless. Fortunately, <laughs> Sustainability and the New Economics offers four chapters on possible solutions. So firstly, tell us a little bit more what is meant by ecological economics. Uh, you've, you've brought that up in this interview a couple of mm-hmm. times now. Uh, on the surface, this also almost sounds like an oxymoron, like an honest politician. But um... Yeah, it's not really an oxymoron because it's saying economics should be based on ecology, the reality that society is embedded in the biosphere and the economy is something that we construct. So it's a part of society. So we have to get that relationship correct on the first page. And that's what ecological economics does. Ecological economics addresses the issue of sustainable scale. How big can the economy be given biophysical limitations? We have to get the scale right and we must not go beyond the sustainable scale. The next thing it addresses is allocation. So we've decided there's all these scarce resources. Okay, what are we going to allocate those resources to? Are we going to allocate them to things like better health and education, comfortable and healthy housing, or are we going to allocate them to nuclear submarines? or maybe electric cars. This is the question of efficient or most useful allocation. Then the third and final part is equitable distribution. Who's going to get, or what's a fair distribution of all these, the fruits of our labours, all these goods and services we produce? How can we organise things so everyone meets their basic needs at least? And then that those who do particularly well from the economic system, how can we limit them from becoming obscenely wealthy, as they do now, where they accrue wealth that they don't even earn? Well, these people didn't create the minerals. They just dug them up. How can that be? How can people just get fabulously wealthy simply from having wealth, from inheriting wealth, right? They go to the best schools, they get to network with other powerful, wealthy people. Next thing you know, you own a big casino, maybe. Or you own huge mining deposits or publishing companies. Why do we let that happen? There's more to ecological economics than those three things, but uh, that's sort of the essence of it. And uh, in the book, we list uh, a dozen or more, maybe 15 key principles that encapsulate ecological economics. It's it's incredibly interesting, just like MMT, really. Uh, It's a bit like watching a magician do a trick and then reading about how they did the trick. Okay, the scales fall from your eyes. You think, ah, that's how it works. You know, that's that's what happens when the Reserve Bank does this or that. Um, when the Reserve Bank buys bonds, for instance, on the secondary market. What what's all that about? Or how about this? How's the Australian dollar created in the first place? 
Where do all these Australian dollars come from? They've got to come from somewhere. Is, is it like magic? Do Australian dollars come just from people doing business and making profits? Or what's really going on behind the surface? This is the great benefit of MMT. It really focuses on what they call the money story. It focuses on the history of money going back 5,000 years. Why was money invented in the first place? And that helps us ex explain what taxes are. Why did governments invent taxation? Uh, what is the purpose of taxation? Is it better for nations to have their own currency or should they have a shared currency like the euro? Should we have a floating exchange rate or a fixed exchange rate? Should the government borrow in a foreign currency or should the government borrow in its own currency? Or well, hang on, why would the government borrow in its own currency? That doesn't even make sense. Is there such a thing as the Australian government having debt in Australian dollars? Or are we using the wrong word when we say the Australian government has debt in its own currency? Well, the answer is we're using the wrong word when we talk about Australian government debt in its own currency that it issues. I can talk more about MMT if you want, because it is an important subject. And Steve, one of the other chapters that I've read refers to paying for a Green New Deal via an understanding of modern monetary theory. Now, coming from someone who is excited about MMT and sceptical of the Green New Deal, <laughs> it's like seeing that chapter heading pulled me in many different directions. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this. MMT teaches us what the limits of national government spending are. And those limits aren't so much to do with the federal budget and whether the federal budget's in surplus or deficit, but it's more to do about the available real resources are sustainably managed, of course. And so if there are available resources or what we call idle resources, such as human labour, well, the government can afford to put them to productive use because the governments like the Australian government can never legitimately say that they've run out of money or that they're going to go bankrupt or interest rates are going to go through the roof if they run another budget deficit or something like that. The beauty of MMT is it puts the focus on real resources, which is what we all should be concerned about. If you want to address the ecological crisis, as we desperately need to do, then you need to know what prudent government spending really would look like. It's not to do with the budget or what they call the government debt, you know, adding all the past deficits together. We really need to know the full suite of policies available to the Australian government at a time of crisis, which we are in now. And that's where MMT has an important role to play in telling us the full suite of government options, 
and we learn the government doesn't need to rely on private sector financial capital. It doesn't need to rely on the bond markets. It doesn't need to rely on multinational corporations, whoever it might be, to come to our rescue. Even some of these, uh, of course, we want to utilize entrepreneurial spirit and all that. Nothing wrong with that. We want to utilize the technical capability. But we learn through MMT that it's the national government that issues the currency that really has the power. They can take over the banking system if they want. They can nationalize the electricity system if they want and the energy system more generally so that these essential services that we all rely on work for the public benefit, not for private profit as they do at the moment. So what's a Green New Deal about? Well, it depends who you read, but essentially it's rapidly addressing the climate crisis and the ecological crisis more generally by getting off fossil fuels as quickly as possible. It's also about full employment, true full employment, and having a fairer distribution of wealth throughout society. And once you understand what MMT is actually saying, you realise all these things are much more possible when you understand how the economy actually works than the mainstream position, which says, well, you're going to run out of tax revenue because for the ageing population, you're going to have all these budget deficits and... You're going to lose your credit rating. Then the bond vigilantes are going to ask for higher interest on government bonds. Well, you don't need to sell government bonds anyway. You can just forget that whole charade which Bill Mitchell nicely terms corporate welfare. MMT, together with ecological economics, tells us what's possible. It gives us the full suite or a more complete suite of policy options. If the Australian government, for instance, wanted to create an Australian-made electric vehicle, when I'm talking about this full suite of policy options, you're starting to think about a lot of the policies the Greens in Australia want. The Greens want things like dental into Medicare. They want mental health into Medicare. They want free higher education, which, by the way, we used to have in Australia under the Whitlam government, and we could have, again, the Greens want things like free childcare we could easily have in Australia. All of these things are possible if governments simply decide that's the sort of society we want. Now, of course, governments should never spend like drunken sailors, and MMT certainly doesn't suggest that. What really matters is total spending in the economy. What matters is private sector spending as well as or combined with government spending, giving us total spending, which determines physical throughput in the economy, which of course has to be calibrated to the biophysical capacity of either the nation or the planet. This is the only way we're going to solve all these pressing 
dangerous problems we're facing. And it should be obvious to any thinking person that mainstream economics is not and cannot address them because it wants perpetual growth primarily. That's its main failing. It's not its only failing. You asked me earlier about uh, policy prescriptions that the book has. We, look, we try and confine those mostly to the concluding chapter uh, where we highlight Herman Daly's sort of top 10 policy options. Herman Daly being the U.S. economist and really the leading ecological econom economist from the 1970s onwards. If you look at Herman Daly's top 10 policy options, they're not hard to find and we'll, we'll perhaps include them in the show notes. Uh, you see that his number one policy option is a cap auction trade system to address those three things that I mentioned earlier that ecological economics is concerned with. That is the scale of the economy overall, uh, the allocation of these scarce resources to their best use, and equitable distribution. How do you address all those things? Well, one good way to start is a cap auction trade system. What's the cap about? A cap is when you limit, say, greenhouse gases to a maximum level. So forget about targets, right? We hear a lot about targets for greenhouse gases. Well, target is something you might hit or you might miss, and most likely you're going to miss it. We advocate for a legislated cap on emissions. They're set at a maximum level for a nation, and they will decrease every year in a predictable way so everybody knows what the greenhouse gases emissions are going to be for the next 10 or 15 years till we get to net zero. And this, of course, is what business keeps saying they want. They want certainty. Well, we'll give them certainty. How do you decide the cap? Well, you get the relevant expert scientists to tell us where the cap needs to be. I mean, they've been telling us this for decades should be no secret by now where the caps need to be, except we've been delaying for so long that the caps need to be now a lot tougher, a lot harder than they would have been 30, 40 years ago when we started addressing this problem or pretending to address it rather. Steve, you pretty much answered all the remaining questions that I'd written down in <laughs> one singular burst of inspiration there. So well done for holding all those thoughts together without breaking it. It was, um, but I suppose you've written all about this, so this would be <laughs> second nature now. So look, last question for you is that the book observes a welcome mm -hmm. convergence between leading promoters of limits-based economic theory does this mean mm. that this could yet take off and there might be just be hope for us yet? I don't often say the word hope. It sounds a little bit hollow in my mouth these mm. days. But um... Yeah, so for this to take off, we need people to educate themselves about all this stuff that I've been talking about. Of course, these aren't my ideas. I'm a humble journalist at heart. These are the ideas of 
brilliant minds, not mine. So we need people to educate themselves. We need good people to enter economics. Now, one way to do this is for people to go to the Modern Money Lab website. And this is the very best piece of advice I can give to people. This is a couple of truly excellent Australian economists, Philip Lorne and Steve, Stephen Hale the key people behind it, based in Torrens University at Adelaide. But if they go to the Money Modern Money Lab website, they will read all about it. They'll see the, court, the online courses that are going to be on offer from September this year. They can read about it. They can see how they can enrol. And they will find lots and lots of stuff they can read, which cover probably in much better detail than I've been able to give you today what you know what all this stuff about sustainability and what a sustainable economics would look like modern money lab and of course uh, Philip Lawn also contributed to um, the book that we're promoting too so this is where we wrap up it's an excellent book Steve uh, well done very well done with a lot of amazing guest authors as well if people want a copy of the book or want to find out more about you where mm. can they go and uh, even more importantly in this capitalist society how can they part with their money I don't want people to part with their money, really. <laughs> um, we'll have a link to the book in the show notes. Uh, people can go to the publisher's website, the publisher being Springer. They can see all the, the uh, they can read the abstracts of the chapters. They can see who wrote them all. I want to give a shout out to the great economist Steve Keen, who wrote one of the key chapters on economics. Steve running for the Senate in New South Wales at the upcoming federal election, goes Steve Keane. Um, what I suggest people do is go to their public library tomorrow and ask their public library whether they've got the book on the shelves, and if not, why not? Can they please order the book for their public library? And that way people can get the book essentially for free and then other people can hopefully read it as well because if people want to buy the book they're free to do it it's not cheap but we'll have that in the show notes as well well that's a lot less capitalist than i had in mind so i've still got a lot to learn steve <laughs> that's um a, a campaign for everyone to stock all public libraries with sustainability and the new economics well, Steve, thank you so much for being a guest and for putting up with some of my off-the-cuff jokes. Pleasure. Anytime. You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcasts. We have just heard from Stephen Williams, editor of Sustainability and a New Economics, Synthesizing Ecological Economies and Modern Monetary Theory. Links to the book will be provided in the show notes. But as Steve suggests, why not encourage your local library to stock a copy of this powerhouse of eminent Australian thinkers, writers and game changers? Did you like the economic focus of this episode? 
You might also like the season two finale episode with Economic Reform Australia or the Economics of Arrival with Catherine Trebek. Season one has a budget special with unconventional economist Alif Van Onselen or a reimagining an Earth-centred economy with Michelle Maloney. Links in the show notes. If you're enjoying your foray into PGAP, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to PGAP on your favourite platform and tell everyone you know about it. The conversations on PGAP and hopefully the actions they inspire are the difficult but necessary topics that need to be front and centre of our vision and visioning if the human species is to persist past 2050 with any threat of dignity or joy remaining. No pressure. Until next time, folks, until then.